Father, as we come to a text of Scripture like this, we again are in need of the Holy Spirit to help us understand and see the insights of your sovereign hands at work, to understand more clearly your purposes, and to therefore, Lord, be reminded of your goodness, your grace, and the wonders of your gospel that will help us be bold, to be uh, courageous, to be at peace in the worst of times, and to be on mission, no matter where we are or wherever you've assigned us. We pray for your Spirit's help during this time of looking in your word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Chapters 7 and 8, uh, sorry, chapters uh, uh, yeah, 7 and 8 have given us uh, an amazing account of a man who was singled out or identified by the members of the church there in Acts as being a godly man, a spirit-filled man, a, a wise man, as a follower of Jesus, Stephen. And then we find that him in his bold and uh, wonderful gospel witness using the Hebrew scriptures, he was put to death by stoning by a crowd who were highly offended at what he had to say. And chapter 7, interestingly enough, ends with Stephen praying for his enemies, praying for those in the last moments of his life, praying for those who are putting him to death. And I'm amazed as you come to chapter 1, sorry, to verse 1 of chapter 8, we have Saul in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. There's more that will come for that later. I'm going to sort of save that out, and we'll deal with that in the weeks ahead. But I want us to notice halfway through verse 1 of chapter 8 in Acts. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So, as we come to this text, we know that we've already read that the disciples of Jesus had received the Holy Spirit. The disciples of Jesus there in Jerusalem had had lives transformed by the gospel. Many, many, many people have been added. Thousands have been added to the church there. It's a thriving, expanding church that's growing exponentially. And now this, a great persecution arose which I think is a way of saying it's not just the difficulties from the past that they had faced. They'd had a couple of their leaders arrested. A couple of their leaders had been flogged. But this is far worse and imprisoned. This is a great persecution that involved all of the church. And now one of their godly leaders was being laid to rest and buried in a local nearby cemetery. The church that was described in chapter 4, verse 32, as being a church of one heart and one soul, you could tell that they were knit together, is now what? Being scattered to the four corners because of Stephen's martyrdom, the first martyr of the New Testament. Where is God in all of this? Why would God permit this terrible outcome for his church. And what in the world is going to happen with this unified church who had begun to treasure and to live out and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit? Although Luke doesn't explicitly mention it here in this text, 
I'm convinced that the providence of God is one of the key underlying themes in this text of Scripture. Because the overall context of Acts is that God is working in this situation in chapters 7 and 8. And when I use the word providence, I'm going to use a definition that was given years ago by theologian John Murray, who wrote a helpful little booklet called Behind a Frowning Providence. And in this, he says this, this is providence, a definition of providence, which I think is in your notes. He defined it as, providence is that marvelous working of God by which all the events and happenings in this universe accomplish the purpose God has in mind. Notice the key word there, all, not some, not a few, but all the events and happenings in this universe. I came across an interesting quote by the Puritan pastor, Thomas Boston, in reflecting on this idea of the providence of God. He said this, Whoever would walk with God must be due observers, careful observers, of the word of God and the providence of God. For by these, in a special manner, God manifests himself to his people. In the one, we see what God says. That is, in his word, we see what he says. In the other, we see what God does. And these are the two books that every student of holiness ought to be much conversant in. They are both written with the one hand, that is, they're both written by God, and they both should be carefully read by those who are true believers. They should be studied together if we would profit by either, for being taken together they give light to the one or the other. And as it is our duty to read the word, so also is our duty to observe the work of God. And so we're observing the work of God here in light of this great persecution that is afflicting the early church. Murray goes on to talk about the fact that when it comes to providences, he says there are different kinds of providences. He says there are uncommon providences of God. Those are miracles. There are common providences like the refreshing rain we receive every so often. There are great providences like the crossing of the Red Sea for the children of Israel. There are what seem like small providences like a king who is unable to sleep in the middle of the night and calls for the books to be read. If you have any kind of fake, uh, uh, weak memories of the book of Esther, perhaps you're familiar with that. And then there are favorable or smiling providences that many of us delight in as we can recite a number of our experiences that we enjoyed. And then there are those dark, frowning providences similar to what we find here in this text of Scripture this morning. If you have a hymnal in front of you, why don't you turn to that hymnal? I want you to look at number 342. 342 is a hymn written by William Cowper. And he speaks to this issue of the providence of God. It is his terminology that is being utilized here by Murray when he talks about the frowning providence of God. But notice his words. He goes on to say in this text, I'm not sure it's actually in here uh, now that I look at it. <laughs> These number of stanzas are not in there. But um, 
you fearful saints, verse 3, verse 2, you fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. In other words, the storms that sometimes come that seem to be the worst thing you could imagine coming actually end up bringing showers of blessing in God's ultimate purposes. And then he says this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, faith sees a smiling face. In chapter 7 and 8 of Acts, we find a frowning providence of God. Now, here's the main concept of my sermon this morning. If you want to boil it down, here's what I'm going to try to illustrate to you or explain to us as we affirm these truths together. The sovereign hand of God wisely directs the dispensing of his sowers of gospel seeds. He is the one who's wisely directing the dispensing of his sowers of the gospel seeds for his glory and for their good. You need to add that to your notes. I don't think I had that put in there. For his glory, for God's glory, and for the good of those believers involved. So as we consider this text this morning in Acts 8, verses 1 to 8, I want to draw your attention to two principles as to why God permitted this great persecution to scatter the members of that church there in Jerusalem. Number one, my first point is that painful persecution pushed the church outward in keeping with God's plan for that church, for his church. Again, we're going to go back and review that familiar verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, because if you don't understand that verse, you're not going to understand the whole book of Acts, because it is the key verse that I think Luke purposely listed there in light of what Jesus said to his followers about their mission. Jesus made it very clear that after he ascended to heaven, he expected his church to not stay gathered together, remaining in Jerusalem indefinitely. It was very clear that the mission for the followers of Christ was to go and make disciples of all nations. Rather than expecting the nations of the world to gather in Jerusalem, which they had done prior to that time, that was the old covenant model, now the people of God are to be his witnesses both, what? In Jerusalem, right? And all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Come on, let's do it together. Here we go. In Jerusalem and Judea, you can say it, and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Very good. Review is one way to learn, right? Okay. So the, although the persecution began in such a way as to take a heavy, disruptive toil on this church in Jerusalem. I am convinced, and I believe the scripture is going to back me up on this, that God was sovereignly at work. If you'll notice verse 1 and verse 4, two words are repeated in, the, in Acts 8, the word scattered. Did you find it there? They were all scattered, verse 1, verse 4, those who had been scattered went about preaching. The same word is also found in chapter 11 of Acts, verse 19, in which 
He's saying this is what's happening now. They're being scattered. And then in verse 19 of chapter 11, he tells us what really was going on. Why was God scattering them? And this is what Luke writes in chapter 11, verse 19. He's fulfilling the purpose that God had for dispersing his church. He said, so those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. The death of Stephen, although it was a, a terrible, painful reality, the subsequent great persecution that soon arose after that, fulfilled the greater purpose of God because God intended to send forth his witnesses, not only to the Jews there in Jerusalem, whether it be Greek background Jews who had, who had converted or Jews who were raised to be Jews. Beyond all that, he says, he wants his witness to go to the Gentiles, even in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, I didn't bring with me two examples of how seeds are dispersed but I'm sure you're very familiar with them. Plants and different trees are designed by God to make sure that their seeds are dispersed widely. Uh, you can look at one example is the maple tree has a seed that looks like a what? Looks like a little wing on it, right? And when you throw it up, it circles around like a helicopter. And on a good wind, that thing can go a, a long distance away from the, the trunk of that tree and the roots of those trees that are anchored in that ground. It's designed to dispense and make sure that that seed goes far and wide. And I'm sure all of you are familiar with the plant like the dandelion and other plants like it that are secured. The seed is secured to this almost weightless system by which the wind can carry this little thing and often to the far distance into your neighbor's yard. You'll see these little yellow plants growing in his lawn and and every lawn around, anywhere they go, those seeds are carried far and wide. By what? By the wind. And here in this text, the winds of persecution, the winds of suffering against the church are carrying now the gospel outward, expansive, according to God's sovereign hand. And in so doing, we are learning in this text that the people of God are not immune from tears and tragedy in the midst of ministry. Look what it says in the text here. Verse 2. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. What a poignant, powerful verse that talked about the pain and anguish can you imagine? This beloved brother Stephen's lifeless body was laying on the ground with all these rocks all over, bloody rocks. And here these members of the church, bravely I might say, went forward and took the body and buried it in a local cemetery. And here now this intense sadness affected the members of that church. Ministry, I'm convinced at times, will involve sowing seeds with tears in our eyes. 
There are people who will walk away from us. There will be people who will uh, reject our gospel witness. There will be people who are highly offended, who will give us a piece of their mind, and who will say things that are deeply painful and sad and, and hurtful. There will be people who will cuss you out. There will be people who will uh, show all sorts of signs of opposition to you. Involved in ministry, you will find, and it may even be a member of your own family, people who will say, I want nothing of what you think is so valuable. It reminds me of the text of Scripture in Psalm 126, in which the psalmist describes the fact that there are times of great joy and great blessing, and then there are times in which you find yourself dropping seeds one after another in a long row, and you're doing so with great tears because, oh, you remember the good times years ago, and now you're having a hard time getting a crop to come up. He says this, Psalm 126, 5 and 6, Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. You know, actual farming never brings forth immediate fruit, right? But in faithful service to the gospel on behalf of Christ, we oftentimes are going to have to face situations in which we ourselves are suffering or someone else that we love is suffering and we, who are a part of our ministry family. And there will be times when we sow with tears, but we trust that God is at work. God is going to bring someday joy and his own harvest in his own time. I came across the writings again of John Bunyan, that great Puritan Baptist preacher, who from 1660 to 1672, that's 12 years, he remained in a jail in Bedford, England, and he did so because he refused to stop preaching. They would have released him if he would say, no, I'm not going to preach anymore. But no, he felt called by God to proclaim the word. And so he remained in prison. And he talked about one of the most sad and painful parts of that imprisonment was being apart from his family. He said this, quote, The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. Not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I often am brought to my mind the many hardships, the miseries, and the needs that my poor family was like to face when I should be taken away from them. In other words, he knows that because he's not there providing for them, they're facing financial difficulty. Especially my poor blind child, he had a 10-year-old daughter who was blind at that time who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. But notice what he realized in light of his being in that difficult situation of life. In the midst of all the tears and the difficulty of facing these losses, this is what he also reflected on. He said, I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now in prison. The scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made in this place to shine upon me. 
Jesus Christ was never more real and never more apparent than now. Here I have seen him, I have felt him indeed. I have seen such things here that I am persuaded I shall never, while in this world, be able to express. Being very tender of me, God has not suffered or allowed me to be molested, but would with one scripture and another strengthen me against all, insomuch as I have often said, were it lawful, I could pray for greater trouble, for greater comfort's sake. What he's saying is that he sees the hand of God at work in bringing about good in the midst of his trial and sufferings. I wonder, aren't sufferings one of the great opportunities and one of the great platforms for the gospel to be demonstrated, to be proclaimed? Isn't it possible that somebody, if someone has a blog and they've started a blog of going through the, the ordeal and the, the difficulty of a situation with someone you know or you yourself has cancer and people are writing the story of how God is helping you through that time, the ups, the downs, the trials, the heartaches, the setbacks, the, the painful procedures. These are ways in which oftentimes the gospel is much more powerfully presented to people who don't know Christ. Maybe it's an opportunity that when we are suffering and going through difficulties, an unbelieving friend of yours may actually offer to give you a hand and actually get involved in helping you and being a, a, a friend to you in that situation. What a wonderful opportunity for them to know more deeply the one who is the object of your faith in the middle of those trials. And as I've been thinking about the situation again, realizing that death came to a member of that church in Jerusalem, and I thought to myself, you know, one of the opportunities that sometimes is so unique about the Christian faith is that a Christian funeral is one of the great opportunities to proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ's grace, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and the wonders of how the grace of Jesus Christ saves sinners like you and me. Have you ever taken the time to write down what are your hymns or songs you'd like to have sung when you are dead and gone? Do you ever take a time to write down your testimony and say, this is what I'd like to have read at my funeral someday? You say, well, who knows when that's going to be? That's going to be years from now. You don't know. You don't know. The point is, as we endure sore trials, as we go through tearful tragedies in this life, and painful losses, one truth remains. Behind a frowning providence of God, behind a, pro a frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. A smiling face. I've used this illustration before. I'm going to use it again just because it seems to help make the point I'm trying to make this morning. And I think it's also the point that Luke is trying to emphasize as this began to be a huge lesson for the church there in Jerusalem. The story is told of a, only one survivor in a shipwreck. And this man washes up ashore of this small island. It's uninhabitable except for just him. And so he's praying to God. He is beseeching God to rescue him, but no help seems to be forthcoming. And so he eventually managed to invest his time and energies into building a little hut. He was so glad to have this little hut to keep, him, to keep the sun off of him. 
keep him protected, protected from the elements. And one day he's out scavenging for food. He comes back to the location of where his hut is and he realizes as he gets closer that he finds his little hut has gone up in flames. And now at this point, the worst in his mind had happened. He now is experiencing the frowning providence of God. And he begins to wrestle with this. He's stung with grief and anger. He says, God, how could you do this to me? He has no one else to talk to on the island. The next day, however, he was awakened by a sound that seemed like to him a ship. And sure enough, a ship had pulled ashore approaching the island. It had come to rescue him. And so the man says, how did you know I was here? And the answer from his rescuers are, we, small, we saw the smoke and your signal through your smoke of that, of that hut burned down. So we raise the question, what was the result of that great persecution against the church in Jerusalem? Look at verse 4. Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Gospel proclamation went beyond the city of Jerusalem. It went beyond Judea. It was now moving further and further out into the areas in which God wanted it to go. And what is happening here in this portion of the scriptures is the mobilization of every member evangelism. Because notice that the apostles in verse 1 remained right there in Jerusalem. They weren't the ones scattering. It was the members of the church there in Jerusalem. Ordinary believers armed with the gospel and armed and blessed with the Holy Spirit. Now, I've listed two quotes in your notes for, from people who have thought about this phenomenon. It is a phenomenon in the early church. One was by historian Kenneth LaTourette, in which he said, the chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession. In other words, they're not professionals. They're not clergy. They're not apostles. But men and women who carried on their livelihood in some purely secular fashion and spoke of their faith to those they met in this natural fashion. What's he saying? He's saying, essentially, that you and I should never doubt for a moment that God has sovereignly placed you are by his design. That is with your co-workers, that is with your neighbors, that is with the people in your family, that is with your friends, the people at school that you share a classroom with. Never doubt for a moment that God has placed you there. And the gospel light that you are shining into that dark corner of the world, wherever God has you, is serving God's greater purpose. Find comfort in knowing the, st the stability in the middle of things that may be difficult in your situation in life. You say, well, I'm divorced. Things really had a, a train wreck in my life at one point. It set me on this path of life, and that's where I've been going ever since. My friend, you are on that path by the sovereign hand of God. And God can help you in those situations to know that he has provided to you the wonders of forgiveness for sinners through his sinless son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, was buried and raised again on the third day. And it is in that most unjust of all events in human history that God was sovereignly at work there providing 
immeasurable blessing to the peoples of the world who will repent and believe in him. And then I'll finally mention uh, Will Metzger adds these insights into his book, uh, Tell the Truth. He says this, in our world, probably, and this is blank in your notes, 99.9%, 99.9% of all Christians are not in vocational ministry. I'm adding the word vocational there. That's what he means. Unless everyone engages in evangelism, praying and initiating and fervently speaking the gospel, not much will happen. New birth into God's kingdom usually involves people as spiritual midwives. What are we saying here? What we're saying is that wherever you are is an opportunity for you to be sharing your faith. It doesn't always happen the same way, but particularly if there's a time of difficulty and trials and challenges in your life, remember, these are opportunities that God is leading you through that, and he can use that to accomplish his purposes for his glory and your greater good. Now that leads me to my next point here, and I'm going to run out of time here. I've got to keep moving here, but verse 5 is going to be our next section to think about the significance of this statement. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming the Messiah to them. When you first read that statement, it seems so matter-of-fact, right? Like, ho-hum. Uh, okay, I got that. It's a fact. It's an ordinary sentence. But I assure you, if you think through what is happening in this verse, if you understand the background, this is a radical, momentous, historic event. And in today's lingo, the word that's overused in today's vocabulary, it's epic. What is happening here? If you want to underline a verse, it should be underlined in your Bible. This is an amazing thing that's happening. Philip's action in verse 5 is nothing short than the fruit of gospel transformation. His life has been changed radically. You say, how do you know that? Well, if you know the background of the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, which is found in John chapter 4, the Gospel of John, you know that when Jesus encounters and, and has a conversation with a woman at the well there in Sychar, you know the story behind the story. And that is we learn in verse 11 of chapter 4 in John, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, period. Well, what's all that about? Well, it's a long story. I don't have a whole lot of time to give you all the ins and outs of it, but I'll just use some comments that John Stott has pointed out. Basically, let's just say, there have been about a thousand years of animosity developed between the Samaritans and the Jews. And you've got, it really started when the 10 northern tribes in the northern part of Israel had banded together. This is after Solomon died, King Solomon. And they created their own capital in the north, in the city of Samaria, in what was now known as Samaria. So they have their own capital, and so they're completely disloyal to the thought of what? Jerusalem being their capital in the southern kingdom. And so you've got all these tensions. And then when the Assyrians came uh, in uh, uh, 722 B.C., the northern tribe was defeated by him, by the Assyrians. They took many of those Jews off into captivity, and many of the foreigns, foreigners came in there, settled there, and intermarried with the remaining Jews who were there in Samaria. And so 
The Jews of the first century viewed the Samaritans as hybrids of their race and of their religion. There's a lot of, of racial and ethnic and religious animosity between these two groups. And so Philip, to bring the gospel witness to the people of Samaria, was truly remarkable and extraordinary. So that raises the question in my mind, what motivated him? The text doesn't really say this, does it? But what motivates him to head up north to the area that most Jews took their very careful time to walk all the way inconveniently around Samaria and then come back up here to go to the cities around the Sea of Galilee. They would go way out of their way and then come up north like that. Here's Philip going straight up there. Could it be that he was looking for a safe place outside of Jerusalem? Not a chance. He wouldn't go there. I'm convinced that Philip went there propelled by one thing, the love of Christ, the love of God. And so my second point is the love of God propels the church across social boundaries and racial ethnic borders. And the reason I say that is because Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, provides a model of this compassionate, loving gospel witness to this dear woman who is sitting at a well in the middle of the day, which means she's an outcast among her own people. Nobody comes in the middle of the day to gather water because it's the hottest time of the day. Here she is there as a woman who has all sorts of shame, all sorts of sorry, broken aspects to her story about her relationships with people that are just sad, sad, sad. And here is Jesus engaging her, conversing with this woman. The social outcast that she was, in the eyes of the Jewish world, this woman was the least likely person who would be granted entrance into the kingdom of heaven. She was an outsider. And there will be many reasons for Jesus to have just said, I'm just going to ignore you there. I'm not even going to engage in conversation because of all of the huge social um, uh, protocols that we would be uh, certainly ignoring here and uh, defying. And so he, he sees her as a person who needs Christ, who needs salvation. Out of a love for this woman, Jesus crossed over the boundaries. He begins to speak to her about living water, about finding true satisfaction in her heart and life through the gospel, finding eternal life in Christ, the true Messiah. Jesus did not despise her as many people did. As a matter of fact, Jesus' conversation to this woman at the well there in Sychar in Samaria is the first example of cross-cultural evangelism in the New Testament. Jesus came, we read in Revelation, to purchase with his blood people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so he taught his disciples that Samaria was a mission field. If you look in John chapter 4, I don't know if you have time to do this, but just look it up real quickly. If you turn back there, John chapter 4, you find some very interesting comments after the conversation Jesus had with the woman. And he says to the people, his disciples there, his, his, uh, the apostles, uh, he, they're gathered there, and he's saying, listen, this is an opportunity for ministry here. I don't think you realize these people are, need the gospel. And so he says, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. 
Jesus sees lost people and he says, here's an opportunity to see these people one to the faith. And the people of Samaria who there were one to the faith through the witness of this woman began to see Jesus through the eyes of faith. They began to understand who he was, his true identity. Look at verse 42. Sorry, I read to you verse 35 of chapter 4. Now look at verse 42 of John 4. They declared Jesus to be the Savior, not of the Jewish people, not of just the well-educated people, not just of the people who have a certain color skin. He is the Savior of the world. If we would ever see the wall of racial division and disharmony dismantled, we must be witnesses in our own Samarias. The gospel is called the gospel of reconciliation, taking people who are separated from God because of their sin from the Holy God. That is the gospel, to bring these two parties who are at odds against each other together through Christ. And that gospel reconciliation is the only hope for true unity and healing among those who are racially and ethnically divided in our world. Just this past week, I had an opportunity to watch a DVD produced by a church there in New York City in which they took a man who told his story about, well, they had a number of people on this DVD, uh, telling their story about how they came to faith. And this guy is amazing. Back, he, said, I grew up in, he said, I grew up as a Palestinian on the West Bank. And he said, I grew up hating Jews. I grew up hating America. I grew up thinking of ways in which I could bring the most um, death and destruction to those two parties that I possibly could think of. He says, a very angry man, he said. Long story, don't have time to get into all the details. He finds his way into the United States and eventually finds his way into this particular church in Brooklyn. And through the witness of numerous people over a long period of time, when God finally humbled him and brought him to the point where he realized that he needed to have a changed heart, it is this man who is saying, I love the people around me today. I love Christ. I love the people who make up my church, his heart is radically transformed by the gospel, the gospel of reconciliation. And when Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation that God gave to him, if you ever want to read this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a fascinating follow-up to this sermon, which I would encourage you to do sometime later, Paul says that he was compelled, he was controlled by the love of God that's what pushed him to go to the people who at one time he hated. At one time, he would never have been around the people that he ended up spending his life, the last years of his life, laying down his life for them, suffering for them, going through all kinds of difficulty to bring the gospel to these folks all around the Mediterranean Sea. That kind of love comes from God who teaches us to love people who are different than us. I wonder if any of us have any individuals or groups that you know of that, mentally speaking, you've categorized them as beyond the perimeter of God's love and saving power. You say to myself, there's no way these people, this person would ever be saved. I'm not sure I ever want to see them saved, you might say to yourself. The gospel of reconciliation is powerful. It can change you, and it can change the heart of those that we think will never be changed. Again, I'll use a quick story of 
a real-life example of Louis Zamperini, a fellow who grew up in great difficulty as one who always got in trouble, but who found that he could run away from those who were trying to get after him. And so he found out he was actually a fast runner. He was so fast that he was involved as a runner in the Olympics and was known to be a tremendous athlete. He was drafted World War II, and the plane that he was on with several other airmen went down in the Pacific, and he spent not a couple of weeks, 47 days trying to survive the brutality of life in a, a, a raft floating in the Pacific Ocean. As if that wasn't bad enough, as he almost died there, he's, they wash ashore on the small island Pacific, and who are they uh, greeted with? Japanese soldiers who immediately placed them in a POW camp and proceeded to treat them with such brutality and such awful torture that it's hard to imagine what they endured. And they have, for some reason, singled out Zamperini because they found out somehow that he was an athlete in the Olympics for the United States, so they really singled him out for tremendously uh, high degree of abuse as a POW. Well, long story short, he survived all that by God's grace. He was released, as were the other POWs, finally. He made his way back to Los Angeles. He married. He was an angry man, drinking, who was just filled with nightmares. He couldn't sleep. All of the things he had gone through were just like a poison in his soul. 1948, Billy Graham is in Los Angeles preaching the gospel. And at that crusade, Jesus Christ enters his life and heart and transforms him on the inside and tells him what the real most amazing thing ever, that he can be found forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ. His life starts on a new path. He began to sleep well. He began to changed the way he dealt with his wife. He stopped drinking. He was now a man who was on mission for Christ. And eventually he became a man who was an evangelist, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ that ended up taking him back to Japan, in which he then appeared before in 1950. He visited the Sugamo prison in Tokyo, where the war criminals were being imprisoned for the horrors that they committed during World War II. And he stood there and addressed all these people. And he said, if any of you remember me, if you can see my face and you can identify who I am, you remember who I am. He says, if you were any of those guards or anything, I would like you to step forward because I would like to speak to you words that say, I am willing to extend you forgiveness from my heart because God has forgiven me in Christ. And various ones did. And he spoke those words extending, said, I listen, I forgive you because of God has forgiven me in Christ. You say, how could anybody do that? Only the gospel of reconciliation is how they can do that. And the wonderful thing is that in the purpose of God, in the scattering of his witnesses beyond Jerusalem and beyond Judea, he is spreading his love. He is spreading his grace. He is spreading his glory in those who live on mission with the gospel wherever they're called. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we ponder this text of Scripture, we again are reminded that 
your ways are not our ways, that there are things that just don't seem to make sense to us, and yet you're able to use them to bring honor and glory to your name. I pray if there's someone here this morning, Lord, who's gone through some very horrible stuff in their past, they've suffered various ways, losses, injustices, being forsaken by somebody who said they promised to be always there to love you and support you. Others who perhaps, Lord, have treated us with such disdain because we have chosen to share the gospel with them. We pray, Lord, you would help us to see that you have a sovereign purpose behind all these things that you have placed us into a situation where we have been shaped and molded by things we've had to endure so that we might be humble before you, that we might be filled with a sense of wonder and amazement at the grace we receive in, by Christ, and that we might be given opportunities, Lord, to be on mission, to live the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, and to treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ, wherever you have placed us, for your glory. So, Lord, I pray that now as we conclude our service today that you would impress upon us again that behind the frowning providence of God, you have a smiling face for your people. We pray that you'd use us, Lord, open up doors of opportunity for us, even when we're suffering, even when there's difficulties, even when there's people who are offended at what we have to say. Lord, help us to realize you have reasons for these things and these are accomplishing your good. As we are sent forth, use us, we pray, for your glory and for our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.